Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. In the late 1970s in California, dark-haired Stephanie Lazares was attending college at UCLA when she met John Rutten. He struck a handsome profile, tall and athletic, with deep brooding eyes and a quick smile. After graduation, the couple continued to date, but they weren't exclusive and continued to see other people. For John, it was more of a casual thing. He wasn't serious about Stephanie, but she had different feelings. She was in love with him. In 1983, Stephanie went to the police academy. She was aggressive, admired for her physical strength, and an excellent shooter. A year later, she became a police officer with the Los Angeles Police Department, working as a patrol officer in Hollywood. She moved up the ladder fast, became a skilled locksmith, and was trained on how to pick locks and learned all about fingerprints. Eventually, she became a supervisor of the detectives. In the summer of 1984, John met Sherry Rasmussen. Striking and ambitious, she was into fitness and loved to work out. And unlike Stephanie, who was focused on herself, Sherry focused on others and was a critical care nurse at the hospital. Ten months later, Stephanie was still pining for John when she happened to see his car and left him a note. But John never responded. A month later, he and Sherry were engaged. He surprised his new fiancée with an engagement present, a brand new BMW. Stephanie got wind of their engagement. Court records reveal that she called John crying. She begged him to come over to her condo. The couple slept together. Stephanie told him she loved him. And John told her he was going to marry Sherry. A few weeks later, John and Sherry moved in together. When Stephanie learned of this, she found out where Sherry worked and showed up at the hospital. Dressed in her police uniform, Stephanie was an imposing sight. She confronted Sherry and told her about their night together. After work, Sherry asked John about it. He admitted it was true, but promised he wouldn't have any further contact with Stephanie. But that didn't stop Stephanie from inserting herself into their lives. One day, using her locksmith skills, 
she let herself into their house. Sherry arrived home to see Stephanie standing there in her uniform. Stephanie became depressed and found it hard to concentrate and took time off work. She wrote a letter to John's mother, telling her that she was in love with her son and that the last year had been really hard on her. Stephanie was having a difficult time coming to terms with John's decision to not be with her and marry Sherry. A year and a half later, in November 1985, John and Sherry were married. He stood at the altar wearing a dark jacket, white dress shirt, and a black bow tie. Sherry wore a traditional white lace wedding dress with a scoop neckline and a long veil. While John had moved on, Stephanie wasn't able to. She couldn't bring herself to date anyone. Her depression deepened, and in desperation, she turned to revenge. Stephanie took a few days off work to carry out her plan. Now in her second year at the police department, she was meticulous. She put together a kit, including white rope, and her backup 38 caliber Smith & Wesson five-shot revolver with a two-inch barrel. She loaded it with the same bullets she used on the job. On the morning of Tuesday, February 25, 1986, she watched John and Shara's townhouse. Surrounded by a fence, their home was in the middle of a gated complex. Sherry had strained her back during an aerobics workout and had wrapped herself up in a red robe and called in to work sick. John left for work at 7.20 a.m. It's not known exactly what happened, but Stephanie surprised Sherry. She used her strength and training to try and subdue Sherry. But Sherry didn't give in. Her athletic muscles sprung into action and she tried to fight her off. Stephanie landed blow after blow on her face, head, and neck. Near the front door, the two women struggled. Two of Sherry's fingernails were ripped off and landed on the carpet. Stephanie grabbed a vase and used it to strike her on the head breaking it into pieces. Then she used the muzzle of her gun to strike Sherry in the face. She attempted to shoot Sherry twice during the struggle, but the bullets hit the sliding patio door and shattered the glass. She had three bullets left. Stephanie managed to tie the rope around Sherry's wrists. She knew what she had to do next. Needing to muffle the sound, she grabbed a blanket and wrapped it around the muzzle of the 38. She fired into Sherry's chest twice, 
one of the bullets, raised her ribs, then torpedoed through her lung. The other bullet passed through both her heart and lung. Sherry fell to the floor. Then Stephanie moved in for the third and final shot. With the barrel still wrapped in the blanket, she placed the muzzle right against Sherry's chest and pulled the trigger. Fragments of her robe were thrust into the hole as the bullet ripped through her flesh, lacerated her aorta, and landed in her spine. Stephanie knew exactly where to aim. Sherry died at 29. In a primal act of domination, Stephanie bent down and bit into Sherry's left forearm, leaving a bite imprint. She was finally in control, and the power was hers. She grabbed their marriage certificate, the piece of paper that should have had her name on it. In the living room, Stephanie opened a drawer and dumped its contents on the floor, then grabbed the stereo components and stacked them in a neat pile near the door to the garage. She walked past cash and jewelry before exiting through the garage. To throw police off, Stephanie drove Sherry's car a couple miles, parked it with the keys in the ignition, and simply walked away. At 9.45 a.m., a neighbor noticed the garage door was open. John called his wife at 10 a.m. to check on her, but Sherry did not answer. John arrived home at 6 p.m. and noticed the garage door was open and Sherry's car was gone. Then he spotted broken glass on the driveway. That's when he noticed the patio glass door had been shattered and the door in the garage that led into the living room was ajar. John knew for sure that he had closed that door when he left that morning. John discovered his wife of only three months. Blood had oozed from Sherry's head, her hands frozen in the air in a defensive stance. He knew from the look in her eyes that she was gone. Police and paramedics arrived. Sherry was declared dead at 6.12 p.m. Investigators saw no forced entry. They recovered the blanket with three distinct two-inch bullet holes. Spent bullets, white rope, and Sherry's broken fingernails. Fingerprints and blood were found on the front door and the door between the living room and the garage and the stereo equipment. Not all the fingerprints were identifiable, and not all the blood stains were tested. But of the ones that were tested, the DNA matched Sherry. Sherry's family were 
devastated by her death. They told investigators that a female cop had threatened their daughter at work, but it appears the LAPD were hesitant to investigate one of their own, especially one that had received so many accolades in her exemplary career. The following day, Stephanie returned to her job at the LAPD like nothing had happened. Sherry's BMW was found nine days later, just two and a half miles from her home. Investigators quickly surmise that Sherry had surprised a burglar and was killed as a result. A few days later, Stephanie reported her backup revolver had been stolen out of her car. But she didn't report it to the LAPD. Rather, she told the Santa Monica Police Department 15 miles away. Sherry's case went cold. Meanwhile, Stephanie went on to marry a fellow Los Angeles police detective, and the couple adopted a baby girl. Throughout her career, she received numerous awards and citations for her exceptional abilities. Her high moral values earned her respect and recognition from her peers. She continued to move her way up the ranks in the police force and became an art theft investigator, a prestigious assignment responsible for burglaries and thefts involving expensive fine art. In 2004, the crime rate in Los Angeles decreased, and the LAPD had the resources to reopen cold case files. In December, they took a fresh look at Sherry's case. It had been almost 19 years. And with fresh eyes, they came to a different conclusion. They thought that John and Sherry's townhouse was not a likely target for burglary due to its location and that burglars prefer to break in when no one is home. Very little had been disturbed in the home, nothing of value was taken from inside, and the stereo equipment piled by the door was neat and orderly, like it had been placed there afterwards. They determined it was a homicide disguised to look like a robbery. Then cold case detectives discovered that a sample of the bite mark tissue had been preserved in a freezer in the coroner's evidence room. In 2005, it was sent to the lab for DNA testing. Court records revealed that a criminalist found cells containing saliva. Test results indicated there were two profiles, a minor profile that matched Sherry, and a major profile that belonged to a female. This shed a new light on the case. The DNA was run through the national database, but did not find a match. So investigators began to pour through the case records and talk to Sherry's family, who repeated what they told police all those years ago about a female police officer visiting Sherry at work.
Investigators knew Stephanie was a chained locksmith and knew how to not leave fingerprints. She would also know how to muffle the sound of a gun and knew better than anyone to get rid of it. The Daily Beast reported that investigators zeroed in on Stephanie. Undercover officers began to follow her. When she went to Costco, they observed her take a drink from a cup, then toss it in the trash. They swooped in and grabbed it and had the DNA tested. The results were a match to the bite mark with the possibility of 1 in 1.17 sex trillion. Being that there's under 8 billion people in the whole world, the DNA could belong to no one other than Stephanie. Investigators had to be careful. Stephanie was working within earshot. So they came up with a plan. On June 5th, 2009, as reported by CNN, a detective in the robbery homicide division approached Stephanie at her desk and asked for her help interrogating a man who claimed to have information about stolen art. She accompanied him downstairs to the jail, an area where she wasn't permitted to bring her gun. Once inside the interrogation room, it was Stephanie who was interrogated for a full hour. Once detectives began to discuss the evidence against her, she asked, Am I on candid camera or something? And declared, This is absolutely crazy. This is insane. Stephanie attempted to leave, only to be stopped and handcuffed, and advised that she was under arrest for Sherry's murder. Another DNA sample was taken from Stephanie, and her bail was set at $10 million. She entered a not guilty plea and remained in custody until her trial. 26 years after Sherry's murder, in February 2012, Stephanie went on trial. The prosecution stated, A bite, a bullet, a gun barrel, and a broken heart. That is the evidence that Stephanie murdered Sherry because Sherry married the man she loved. Her defense lawyer attempted to paint John as the one who pursued Stephanie and questioned the validity of the bite mark DNA sample taken two decades earlier. The DNA swab taken at her interrogation again proved to be a match to the bite mark, and DNA found under Sherry's fingernails matched Stephanie. The trial lasted three weeks, and jurors deliberated for two days, before finding Stephanie guilty of first-degree murder. Prior to her sentencing hearing, the prosecution presented a written statement to the court, stating that Stephanie has never taken responsibility for her acts, never expressed any regret or remorse for her actions. 
her profound narcissism led her to kill and continues to motivate her denial of responsibility. This unrepentant selfishness poses a real and significant danger to any person whose interests conflict with her egotistic desires. Well, I guess that about sums up who Stephanie is. A judge sentenced her to 27 years to life. With credit given for time served, she could be released in 2034 when she will be 74. Stephanie appealed her conviction. It was denied. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Sandra Burfield. Stephen sat in the restaurant, his shoulders drooped with little confidence. His awkward comments made the staff nervous. He zeroed in on Sandra and sat in her section. But when she turned down his advances, he began to stalk her. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>